And good afternoon, assuming that's when you're listening to this. I guess I should never say that. Kyone Wolf has a sore throat. That's why you're not hearing her voice. Um, although I'm the host of the show, it's appropriate. It's not inappropriate that I should talk. And that may have been a, a HIPAA violation that I just did, too. Am I allowed to tell people? Uh, yeah. I'm going to take my chances. She's got a sore throat. Uh, that's why she's not here, to, here today. We miss her. But we've got a wonderful show for you today here on The Scramble, uh, our Monday show. Uh, we are going to talk in a little while to, we're trying with sort of two, two different views of Donald Trump, really, that uh, are essentially, that have quite a bit of overlap in their Venn diagram circles, although one comes out rather negative and one comes out rather positive. So the positive view will come later. That's from Michael Goodwin, a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and columnist for The New York Post. Um, a self-avowed Democrat, but uh, someone who has announced that he intends to uh, vote for or support Donald Trump. Uh, he's also a commentator on Fox News and Fox Business. Anyway, you'll hear about him later. Um, and uh, joining us right now, it really has been a very dark and stormy campaign season, but one of the bright lights has been the emergence of Jamel Bowie, a chief political correspondent for Slate Magazine, with some really terrific journalism about this. And one that has a lot of people talking uh, right now has been his most recent uh, piece in which he he tries to sort of figure out what's inside, what set of nesting dolls uh, are inside this Trump recrudescence, what's uh, what's firing it all up. And, and first of all, Jamel Bowie, welcome to our program. Thank you for having me. And so one of the things that you do think provides some of the, the engine for the Trump resurgence uh, or insurgence is, in fact, um, um, a resentment. Uh, of President Obama. Explain the, the connection that you make in your piece. So the cliche is that after Obama was elected, we kind of entered this post-racial era, this era of good feelings when it came to race. But I think both lived experience with people have observed in national news and in their own lives um, and social science suggests just the opposite, that the election of Obama has sparked kind of a, a resurgence of racial resentment and uh, explicit prejudice and animosity in American politics. And so I take that sort of as my starting point. And I, I use quite a bit of social science research to back up this point that after 2008, there was a real resurgence in this stuff. And I, I think part of what's driving it, um, and and I guess the way I'd put it to listeners is that if you buy the premise as I do, that the United States has this long and difficult and painful history with racism, and also that racism was sort of an organizing principle for American society for a long time, that it broadly determined who got what resources and who got what protection, then, you know, A, the election of Barack Obama was a historic moment in all the best sen all the best ways, but it was also a historic moment in that it kind of suggested uh, the end to that sort of organized that end to race as an organizing principle for the distribution of resources. And, you know, in American history and sort of like the history of human existence, when when old hierarchies start to deteriorate, there are backlashes. People who were invested in them get very anxious and try to do something about it. And that that's basically what I think is driving Trump, kind of uh, the slow buildup of a backlash to this very historic event that has that at least presages or presages um, real material consequences and how America organizes itself, where, you know, 40 years from now, 30 years from now, uh, it'll be possible to win national majorities, to, to uh, win power without needing to rely um, on white Americans, the, the traditional 
um, the traditional sort of power case in American society. And if you take that seriously, then it's destabilizing to a lot of people. And it's no surprise that someone like Trump, whose promise is to make America great again, who presents that, I think, in very racialized terms, in terms that very strongly suggest that what he means by great again is he, he intends to restore white Americans to their proper place in his view. Um, yeah, it makes sense that he would find some level of currency among American voters. So one of the things that's interesting to explore in that connection is to, to whatever extent um, white Americans of either the, sort of the middle class, the lower middle class, or the working class feel as though the, the American DNA code has been rewritten in such a way as to disadvantage them. Um, how wrong are they? I think they're very wrong. Um, I, you know, I think humans as a, you know, as a species um, have a tendency to see things in, in zero-sum terms. And I think some, that's, that's a, quite a bit of what's driving this, um, that a lot of Americans, and, and I should say, I should add the other part of this, is we had the Great Recession, the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression. And so at the same time that there is this um, challenging of the racial hierarchy, it was also very true that millions of people were seeing their livelihoods um, uh, be destroyed or, or diminished. Um, and so the two things are happening simultaneously, and uh, they they just create lots of stress and anxiety. But I, I don't think I don't think racial change or, or turnover or however you want to phrase it in the United States is uh, a zero sum game at all. I think you know there has always been, and hopefully um, we can hopefully there'll be more potential for people of different races. Um, to work together uh, with common aims. Um, the United States, in a lot of ways, is kind of the world's oldest and, uh, uh, in some regards, successful, in other regards, very unsuccessful <laughs> experiment in, in multiracial democracy. Um, and I, myself, uh, as an African-American, is very invested in seeing that uh, succeed. And I don't think success means that whites are somehow... Um, uh, disadvantaged at all. So one of the things that we've seen in the in the rhetoric of Trump and the rhetoric of his supporters is this kind of post-lapsarian paradise lost notion that something that was good has gone deeply, deeply wrong. And so he says, we don't win anymore. He's going to make America great again. And you, you hear that a lot. Uh, I, I wrote a column this past weekend, which angered a lot of Trump supporters. So I got to hear from them. Uh, some of them I was interested to hear from and some of them I was frightened to hear from, but um, <laughs> that's another story. But um, one of the things that, so there are all kinds of recurring theme, themes, and some of them tend to fortify your premise. I mean, I heard a lot about Obama. Uh, I heard a lot about Black Lives Matter. Uh, I heard a, a, a lot about um, people who are somehow are able to game the system. Uh, uh, there was one kind of Rosetta Stone type email that talked about how Sanders and Clinton are willing to basically ki kiss butt for votes from all the special interest groups. And now I'm so, you know, quoting from the email that support these disruptions, college blowhards that don't pay taxes but expect the American taxpayer to foot the bill for their student loans, blacks who kill each other in large numbers but are innocent victims when they get shot breaking the law, illegal aliens that play the system uh, and the American American taxpayer gets stuck with the tab. Gays that cause businesses to go out of business because they do not embrace their lifestyle, etc. writes this e emailer named Dennis. So there you have kind of your Rosetta Stone, this notion that there are, are that there is this group of people who who constitute 
a, a problem and who have kind of subverted America's purpose and made it weaker. So I guess I'm wondering how ultimately who, whoever has to run against that ideology and whoever has to sort of comment against that ideology, how do you explain it a different way? Yeah, I think – so I think attitudes like the one expressed in that letter are very loud and seem like they constitute a large portion of the United States. But I think, in, in fact, they're they're probably a distinct minority. And I think most people, you can appeal to them um, uh, with a sense of basic fairness, with a sense of um, – uh, of of empathy, and I I think you see that sort of on. Let's just go th- if we go through the kind of the problems that the emailer um, noted. You know, you look at criminal justice reform, for example. Uh, for the first time in decades, there's like a real public appetite for changing how we do criminal justice, for changing how we do policing. And if you look at the polling data, sort of beginning with the events in Ferguson in August of 2014. There has been a meaningful change among white Americans who say that the criminal justice system is unfair to African Americans, right? That being confronted with um, with video footage, um, potentially, you know, knowing African Americans in their own lives, of hearing people's stories, has has begun to change people's attitudes. Um, and I think for whoever is running against Donald Trump, uh, assuming he's the nominee. In the fall, part of of running against him will be to de-abstract all of this, to talk about um, to talk about civil rights, uh, to talk about sort of uh, economic disenfranchisement and economic advancement uh, in terms that are concrete that that bring people um, into the conversation. I mean, what's notable about Trump, right, is that he doesn't really talk in the concrete. It's all abstractions about us no longer being great no longer winning, um, and so on and so forth. So I think that the, the right counter that, to that is to make this concrete, to confront voters with the kinds of actual people who would be harmed by a Trump presidency and to appeal to voters' uh, better angels um, and, and sense of common uh, decency and, and citizenship. So we're talking to Jamel Bowie, by the way, uh, from Slate Magazine. One trope that recurred a lot that I've noticed recently is um, the phrase, this mess we're in. And a lot of it has to do with, all right, you've had it your way for eight years. That's actually uh, a quote from a different email that I got. You've had it your way for eight years, and look at the mess we're in. But there was a similar uh, sentiment expressed in the New York Times uh, on Saturday. There was a letter from an evangelical uh, Christian in Pennsylvania. He says, we're desperate for change in direction. And in future columns of the New York Times, I will be looking for reasons that we should listen to you, part of the establishment that got us into this mess. This is also from a Trump supporter. So, you know, it's an interesting question. What is this mess? I mean, if you one of the struggles the Obama administration has had for really seven years is getting a positive message about itself out um, that, you know, obviously uh, the the stock market has significantly rebounded since 2008. Jobless rate is cut in half. Energy is cheap. Uh, crime is down. I mean, we can tick through a whole bunch of things like that, <laughs> of, uh, observable indices that would suggest that we are in something other than, quote, this mess, unquote. So what do they mean when they say this mess? It, it, it's it's interesting because I'm not, I'm not entirely sure. You know, there's a temptation to say that Trump supporters all come – from sort of the declining working classes. But 
a su- substantial number of them. I, I think at this point, I think that the polls suggest like a, if not a, plur- if not a majority, then a plurality are are just standard issue middle class people um, who you know were hurt by the recession, like everyone was, um, but have recovered a bit more quickly and, and are doing basically okay. I can imagine for some of them, this mess may be the high price of college, the high price of health care, um, uh, sort of things that are common across the board. And that's why that's what puzzles me. Right. You know, middle class uh, white Americans, or at least a subset of them, are not the only people facing these things. Um, lots of people are, but not not everyone has uh, jumped onto the Trump Trump train. Just just them. Um and so I think, you know, this, this is why I keep coming back to the role of race into this. Because if, if you try to analyze Trump just from the basis, just from an economic analysis or just from sort of you know, the Obama administration didn't, didn't do enough um, or wasn't, wasn't aggressive enough in dealing with the recession and dealing with the housing crisis, um, you run into the fact that, again, lots of Millions of Americans face similar problems and anxieties and, 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 and stresses. Um, millions of African Americans, Latinos, so many people are in a similar boat as some of the most frustrated Trump supporters. So wh- why, why then aren't, aren't they embracing someone like Trump? Um, and I think the answer is that for that this mess of sorts um, doesn't just mean the economy, it doesn't just mean the perception of foreign threat. I think it's a, a way of trying to communicate a sense that there's something off in how America is currently organized. Um, and you know, your 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 uh, letter writer touches on this. You know, is is angry about Black Lives Matter. Is angry about the um, rapid, very rapid acceptance of of marriage equality over the past. Uh, seven years of these very serious and momentous cultural changes that for a lot of Americans suggest that, you know, this, this isn't the country they thought it was. And, you know, I, I, I say that from a real place of sympathy almost, you know, I can, I can kind of imagine what it must feel like to one day see yourself and your values represented at the highest levels of American society. And then in what feels like an instant, um, someone who is utterly foreign to you. I mean, I grew up in uh, southeastern Virginia uh, in, in a community that was, you know, substantially African-American. Um, people like Barack Obama are not unusual to me. Uh, they fit into my experience. But for a lot of Americans, they are do not fit into their experience. And it, in fact, is quite disturbing. Um, and that that is going to that's going to create some kind of blowback. Um, and I think, again, I think Trump, uh, or at least whatever movement Trump is tapping into, is that blowback. Speaking of blowback, I'm wondering how effective or uh, perhaps uh, counterproductive you feel the current protest movement against Trump is. So, you know, the the, the demonstrations are getting bigger. They're setting up earlier. Um, you are starting to have things that sound like almost, a, a, as you point out, a, a refight of the rhetoric of 2008. I was not aware of this until I got yet another email, Jamel, uh, <laughs> uh, mentioning Bill Ayers. I thought, Bill Ayers, what does Bill Ayers have to do with any of this? Well, it turns out Bill Ayers was one of the people, he was spotted uh, among the people kind of organizing against Trump in Chicago. 
Chicago. So it's 2008 all over again. We're talking about Bill Ayers. But there is, if you sort of look at the channels that Trump supporters are tuning into on social media and elsewhere, there is this starting to be this trope of silencing Trump. They're trying to silence Trump. Um, and, and so we've been having a national conversation about the violence that, that erupts when people feel like somebody's trying to silence Trump. But they're having a different conversation, which is someone is interfering with our ability to, uh, to organize and, and hear this guy. And I'm wondering whether that's getting people dug in in a way that's uh, maybe not all that conducive to a national conversation. I mean, obviously, people have a right to protest, but are, are these protests working? Yeah, I don't know. Um, I think that's a really tough question because um, I, there there is a case for it on both sides, right? That like these that protesting Trump events, um, uh, Trump events that have you know Trump Trump is inching very closely towards condoning or even inciting violence against opponents. Um, protesting these events uh, is in some way kind of like self-defense of the body politic, right? Saying that this is kind of an unacceptable thing to have in a democratic society, that it goes beyond questions of free speech and into and, and really, you know, fundamental questions of, of how what, it, what is a legitimate um, kind of politics. Now, on the other, and this is like, I think a much more like, you know, purely tactical uh, approach, um, maybe you are hardening the views of Trump supporters and making more people, you know, sympathetic to Trump, people who may not really like him very much, but also do not like um, the the image of um, lefty protesters um, trying to trying to shut him down. You know, I honestly, I'm, I'm a bit divided on this myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I very much sympathize with the Trump protesters as someone who views the what Trump is stirring up as as, as quite dangerous. Um, I also thinking in terms of an election. Analysts uh, were wonder if this is not counterproductive to the goal of, of beating Trump in an election. What tempers that is the fact that this is no longer 1968, that the, the, the number of people who might vote in a backlash against those kind of protests is, very, is much, much smaller, um, and it's not nearly large enough to deliver a national election. Um, so even if it is somewhat counterproductive, um, it's not so counterproductive as to be fatal, um, which wasn't the case, you know, in '68 with the with the demonstrating and violence then. So, uh, your one of your underlying theses, or to, to the extent that anybody's willing to predict anything anymore, and any of us is really kind of a fool at this point uh, to uh, to try to predict things, um, given the way things have gone so far. I mean, one way that this might play out is that it doesn't appear as though, unless he were to radically diversify his voting base, it doesn't appear as though that Donald Trump, if he were the nominee, could win a general election. It just runs counter to everything that we've learned in the last two election cycles. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that Trumpism, as you point out, will go away. I was listening to an Italian journalist uh, talking about uh, making a comparison that others have made between Trump and Berlusconi. And, and she was saying, you know, Italy's really not the same after Berlusconi. It's not like he went away and everything else went away. But everything that he brought in, all kinds of ideas and even modes of, of expression that he brought in stayed. I think she used the word a coarsening. 
and and so that really is probably the question. Like, let's say this thing doesn't turn out to be a home run. Um, we're going to go to break here in just a second. But before we do, Jamil Bowie, what's the lasting impact of this? I think the lasting impact of this is that you will have other younger, ambitious politicians try to tap into what Trump has dredged to the surface. Um, the the Trump movement is based off of trends that are ongoing. America is is continuing to diversify. Um, our economy isn't quite working for um, a segment of Americans, uh, and it seems it seems to me very plausible that four years from now or eight years from now or, or however, um, you maybe you won't get a, a demagogic type Trump um, a fi- like figure, but you'll get people trying to organize this into um, a viable electoral base on you know different kinds of levels. I would actually look at the 2018 congressional elections to see what might, this might begin to look like. All right. Uh, we're talking to Jamel Bowie. He's going to stay with us for a few minutes into the next segment as we talk to Michael Goodwin. So let's grab our break right now. We'll come back and have that conversation. All right. We are back. We are having a conversation, uh, as we seem to every Monday, uh, about the Donald Trump candidacy, the Donald Trump phenomenon in American politics. We've been talking to Jamel Bowie, chief political correspondent for Slate magazine. We're going to he's going to stay with us for a few more minutes. We're going to add to the conversation. And I should say, by the way, in the final segment of today's show, as we did last week, I'll just take your phone calls. Uh, We'll talk about this. 860-275-7266. Don't call now, though. Michael Goodwin joins us, Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and columnist for The New York Post, also a commentator on Fox. News and Fox Business and the author of I Koch, a decidedly unauthorized biography of the mayor of New York, Edward I Koch. So, uh, Michael Goodwin, welcome to this conversation. Um, in, the, in the beginning of, the, of your piece, you talk about how you're sort of uh, temperamentally and maybe at the level of your DNA code uh, kind of a Democrat. But almost by process of elimination, it seems you've uh, begun drifting towards the idea of voting for and otherwise supporting Trump. Um, tell us about that process. Well, it uh, really is a process of elimination. Um, uh, I am not a fan of what President Obama has done. I voted for him in 2008, but I believe uh, I was misled by the kind of president he would be. I don't think he ever intended to be a uniter. Uh, And I, I am a big believer that we've got to unite the country, not everybody, that's impossible, but a real national consensus around the big issues, security, budget, debt, uh, the, the economy, those kinds of things. And uh, so I'm a, maybe I'm a Moynihan Democrat. Um, nor many of us left, unfortunately. But anyway, um, I, I looked at the Republican field. I thought that there were a number of interesting, qualified people uh, intrigued by Marco Rubio, as so many were, uh, Chris K- Christie, John Kasich, uh, Jeb Bush, Scott Walker. Um, and then there were others whom I admired, uh, but didn't particularly think they would be good presidents or get very far, Ted Cruz in that group. So I thought it was a, an interesting field. When Trump first got in, I thought it was a joke. I said, you know, I even joked in my column, I'd moved to Canada. Um, and then uh, when he got serious, I 
thought, this is absurd. He's really going to ruin a good field. But slowly, as the others all fell away for lack of support, um, and obviously Trump's theatrics in many ways take precedence over what he's really saying, but when you look at the people he has attracted, he's now got on the order of 7.5 million votes. Um, it, it is an extraordinary group of people who I believe are, and they certainly believe, have been abandoned by both political parties. And this is largely the working class and the, and the lower middle class uh, across the country. I mean, many of them are white but not all of them. I think there are, there, there are pockets of them in cities everywhere. There are pockets uh, in the middle of the country. There are pockets on the coast. And they are fervent in believing that, A, they have been abandoned by both parties, that the Democratic Party is catering on the left and the Republican Party is catering to big business only, and that the, the working middle class has been left out of the Washington's consideration. That's not to say that politicians don't talk about the middle class all the time, but what their policies actually don't serve the middle class. It's the poor or the rich. And there have been a number, number of studies done, Joel Kotkin among others, called the barbell economy, where you've got big clumps of rich and poor, but very thin in the middle. And that is what is happening to our country, and these people are largely attracted to Donald Trump because they believe he's speaking to them when he talks about trade and immigration and just the, the concept of pride in America and, as he says, winning. Uh, I think it rings a bell for a lot of these people, and they are quite sincere in believing that he is their last best hope. So you grew up, I mean, you grew up among the kinds of people you're talking about right now. You grew yes. up in a working class community, small town, central Pennsylvania. So and there are obviously two ways in which you could interpret your role at this moment, because in, in many respects, I mean, you you have graduated out of that milieu, uh, but you're still looking back towards it. Um, on the one hand, you could say, as you are doing, I guess right now, this is the closest thing, as flawed as it is, this is the closest thing to an articulation of our real interest uh, or your real interest people back home. Um, or you could say, well, this might be another rich guy who's lying to you, that, you know, who doesn't really seem to have any well-articulated positions. I think you said in your column, you know, they seem to fit on a bumper sticker as opposed to a 30-page uh, position paper. So why did you choose the, the former rather than the latter? Why are you comfortable while not really knowing quite exactly what Trump's talking about in a really detailed way? Why are you comfortable thinking he really can deliver? Well, just to, to be clear, I mean, I, I, I qualify it somewhat by saying I'm getting there. I'm thinking about it. I'm not fully committed to Trump. Um, and I wish, as I say clearly, I wish there were a more conventional candidate, meaning someone who didn't have this erratic moment, who didn't demonize Megyn Kelly and others, and who, who had real policies. Uh, I wish there was somebody who embodied his appeal to those left out people who also was more conventional in other ways but there isn't anybody i i believe hillary clinton is the most dishonest person in public life today i think if she is elected that will be a vindication of the clinton style of clinton clintonism and i believe it's a give up on the future in terms of ethics in terms of integrity i mean how would we ever hold any mayor or governor or member of congress uh 
to account on ethics or integrity if Hillary Clinton uh, is in the White House again with Bill Clinton. I mean, I just think it's, to me, incomprehensible that that's the best America can do. Now, I recognize the problems with Trump, uh, but I think that the people he has inspired, to me, that's the end of the equation I'm looking at. I'm not so much looking at Trump himself. I'm looking at those people. I think those people are sending a very loud message to the country. And I heard your your, your other guests talking about that before I got on. I mean, this is these people regard themselves as the silent majority. They they're not being silent anymore. They they feel they're left out, and now they want to play. I think that's terrific. We should want all Americans to participate in the political process. And I'm happy that they are, but whether Trump wins, I mean, we don't, it's obviously too early to say, but I think it's a real accomplishment to get these people to participate in the political process. They have not been doing it. So I, I think that's a wonderful thing. Uh, Jamel Bowie is still with us. I'm going to swing you back into this conversation. One of the things that, that I hear in a lot of the conversations that I do have is this notion that really ultimately, if we have a showdown between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, as looks probable, it, it really is going to be one of those elections in which everybody's kind of playing defense. You know, that, that, that although there may be some people who can see Trump as aspirational and maybe some people who can see Hillary Clinton as aspirational, maybe on behalf of women, there are going to be an awful lot of people playing defense, just sort of saying, well, you know, I mean, I, I might be in that category. I'm not a really real Hillary Clinton enthusiast. I certainly would find it very easy to vote for her, given the alternative of Donald Trump. I, I don't know. What's your take on this, Jamel? So, I, you know, I think I think it's interesting um, that Michael cited the amount of support Trump is getting in the Republican Party as sort of a reason to take him seriously. And and I, I agree. The fact that I think at this point, 7.6 million people have voted for Donald Trump, although I would add that there's no real evidence that these are new people being brought in as much as they're existing Republicans or Republican general election voters coming in to vote into the primaries. Um, but that that's still meaningful. I think so. If, 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 if our premise is that Trump drawing this large amount of support um, constitutes something new and remarkable and potentially inspiring that I, I think that also holds, interestingly, for Hillary Clinton, who at last count has brought in about 8.7 million people. She's won the votes of 8.7 million people in the primaries, um, more than any other candidate running thus far. Um, so I'm not sure that this is going to be, I think it's going to be a, a tough election, but I think if, if we buy that there are going to be people who come out to vote for Donald Trump, in a bit of a in a bit of an optimistic way, then the same set of numbers suggest the same for Hillary Clinton. I I also I do want to challenge um, the idea though that Trump is somehow speaking um, for the American working class writ large. The American working class is very diverse. Um, uh, the white working class at this point is just a plurality of the American middle class um, or working class. Many working class Americans are black. And Latino and, and even Asian American, um, and if you look at the numbers, um, uh, Reuters does a, a rolling poll of Americans, and so it's very helpful because you can kind of see, um, you can kind of you can kind of narrow down demographics because they're just polling so many people. Um, Trump is held in an uh, unfavorable view by uh, about sixty-two percent of Americans 
with only uh, a high school degree or just a little bit of college. Um, so that to me doesn't 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 rep- seem like someone who is really speaking to the aspirations of the American working class at large. It, it seems to me that Trump is speaking to the resentments of some members of the American working class, um, but just as many other ones are, are rejecting him, and, and perhaps more. All right, Jamil Bowie, I know you've got to go to another gig, so uh, thank you very much for joining us today. I'm going to uh, stay here with Michael Goodwin for a second. Uh, Michael Goodwin writing for the New York Post about his, um, uh, well, limited but but undeniable uh, interest in, in supporting, getting there, as you put it, uh, getting there yeah. towards. Uh, <laughs> so uh, one thing that we're going to be doing a show about tomorrow is sort of asking people to kind of imagine a world uh, in which Donald Trump is pre- president is maybe it's 2019. He's going into the third year of his presidency. So, uh, and I don't know how fair it is to ask you to be this speculative, but I guess I would like to, you to imagine one of those central Pennsylvania towns, uh, the, like the one that you're from and the, the people that you're concerned about. Imagine that it's the beginning of the third year of Donald Trump's first term. What, what would you expect or hope to see different in that place? How, how would it have changed if your fondest hopes were realized? Well, look, I, th- I think the third year would be the crucial year. Um, for example, if, if there were to be anything uh, significant to what Ronald Reagan was able to achieve economically, let's say, um, it really was in that third year. Uh, I mean, there was, as I recall, there was a recession, I believe, in 1982. Reagan takes office in 81. I believe there's a recession in 82. Um, and so I think that that was somewhat of a hangover from the inflation of the Carter years, the tight money that Paul Volcker famously did to to get the country back to a stable footing. So to do that, you've got to, uh, in effect, take some tough medicine. And so I, I, I do believe that there is a certain bubble created now by the economic policies, including the trade and the cheap money and all of these things. Uh, so I think there would have to be there would have to be some reckoning with this current regime of of cheap money and and open trade. Uh, so I believe that by the third year, so hopefully if if Trump were to follow through on his promises, you would begin to see some of the benefits. You would begin to see some more economic growth at home. If you were able to get some tax reform, if you were able to get repatriation of the uh, monies held abroad by American multinational companies come back to the United States in some kind of tax uh, forgiveness or arrangement, then I think a lot of that money would be plowed into the American economy, so you would see more growth. I mean, I think it's growth equals opportunity. And I believe the part of what we're seeing in this country now, including everything from college people supporting Bernie Sanders to the, to the working class and middle class support of Trump, is, this, is a result of the lack of growth, that we are now in what's called the new normal of 2% annual growth. When you look back at Reagan in 84, I believe, I could, be correct, I could be wrong by a couple of points, but I believe there was something like 7% growth uh, in one or two of those years, four, four and a half in others by 84, 85. So you had enormous growth, job creation, people feeling confident about the future, people starting new homes, new families moving out of the basement into their own place, getting married as a result of, of that economic independence. 
So I think that's what you would hope to see, and that would be terrific for all of those small towns because I think for those towns it would mean more manufacturing jobs, more higher-paying jobs, higher-skilled jobs coming home at good salaries, at good family salaries, good middle-class salaries. And, and don't forget, Colin, across the country, middle-class and median family incomes have largely been stagnant or declining for the better part of 20 years. And a lot of people have covered that up with debt. They covered it up with credit card debt, with uh, using their home as an ATM. And all of that is maxed out now. So people now need real income. They need to see real income growth. And I think that's the potential uh, of, a, of a rebounding economy to provide a lot of growth, a lot of opportunity. And I think that would solve a lot of the country's problems. It would be the first step to building a consensus about what do we do next? What do we do about this debt, this huge debt overhang? What do we do about the entitlements that clearly need to be reformed if, we're, if they're to be saved? So, but I think growth would be the first thing that would get the country back to feeling good about itself. All right, Michael Goodwin, on that happy note, the lights are winking on, back on in uh, central Pennsylvania. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, and uh, I should say, first of all, this has been Michael Goodwin from the New York Post, uh, who's written a column about his uh, inching for, to, forward towards supporting Trump. I should also say, in the final segment, it's just open phones. It's you and me. We've been doing this on Mondays, 860-275-7266. You've got your anxieties. You've got your fears. You've got your hopes. Bring them out on the air. 860-275-7266. All right, so we're back. Usually right here, uh, Kion Wolf thanks everybody but she's home with a sore throat. So I want to say, first of all, get well, Kyone Wolf. I hope you're back in here tomorrow uh, tweeting for us today, at WNPR Colin, where you may tweet right back at us. We'd love to have you be part of our Twitter conversation today. That's Greg Hill in the house. Uh, Gina Amatruda uh, is, uh, is running the board for us today. What, what would be the analogy uh, to have, having Gina Amatruda? It's like uh, Admiral Kirk showing up to fly some fairly low-level star cruiser on Star Trek, something along those lines. Anyway, Gina Amatruda, uh, who is uh, a Jedi uh, on the board. I just mixed up two movie franchises. I'm sorry about that. Uh, Betsy Kaplan produced today's show. We've got all kinds of wonderful interns in there. I can't really see who's in there, but uh, type them out on the screen and I'll thank them. Uh, meanwhile, uh, we've been trying to do this on Mondays, just kind of let you call in about whatever you want to talk about. Uh, the number is 860. It'd be good if I knew the number. 860-275-7266. A lot of calls on the board already. Uh, um, I'll just quickly tell you one thing that I've been thinking about, particularly a lot today. I mean, having heard from a lot of angry Trump supporters over the weekend because of a newspaper column I wrote, uh, my initial instinct was to recoil. <laughs> uh, but now I don't know. I, now I want to know more. I, I, I was sort of glad to have Michael Goodwin on. I want to know more about this kind of thinking. You know, what's it all about? Because it's not nothing, right? We may not agree with it. Uh, we may not think, or I may not think, that Donald Trump is the proper vehicle with which to address these grievances, even if these grievances are thoroughly legitimate, uh, whether they are or not. We may, I might think a lot of things, but the truth is that sentiment 
uh, is real to the tune of 7.6 million votes or so far or whatever. So it, I think it's important to know about it. And I think also it's probably good for the health of our country to try to hear these voices uh, when they're not screaming really bad words or threatening to punch us in the face. I mean, but, you know, hear the other people who support Trump. Why do they support Trump? What's going on here? So um, here we go. Uh, and uh, let me begin by uh, talking to Joan in Goshen. Our number, 860-275-7266. If you can't get on the air, tweet at us at WNPR Colin. Hi, Joan. You're on the air. Hi, Colin. Love your show. Hey, I'm not a Trump supporter. I caught the tail end of this. And I think what's bothersome is the rhetoric that people keep throwing out. And that's where the emotions come in because everybody knows what the problems are, but nobody's identified any of the solutions. Have you identified any of the solutions, or are you, or are you just craving? Uh, I'm craving. I'm craving right now, <laughs> waiting to hear from somebody about, what, uh, yes, we know what the problem is. How are we going to deal with it? Um, and I think that's a fair thing. So, And, and among the candidates in the, who are remaining, you don't, you're not really seeing anybody uh, who's, who's lining those answers up in any kind no, of way. No, I mean, the closest would be Hillary. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. All right. Well, listen, thanks for your call, Joan. Uh, you'd like to see the rhetoric toned down. Uh, so would a lot of people. <laughs> thanks. Thanks for being with us today. Let's go to Tay in Southbury. Hi, Tay. You're on the air. Yes. Love your show. But I mean, Hillary is so scary to the Republicans, but not only to them, so many males, white males, you think that Obama had prejudice against them. But what don't they like about her? Well, she lied about Benghazi. They proved they're wrong. But they keep saying it over and over. And remember, it was Hitler that said that. If you lie often enough, long enough, people will believe it. And that is what we are. And so now we've ended up with this real bully, a bully who could be arrested in any other country in the world, who is so strident, and that appeals to the to the regular male. Well, the oh, good I mean, the good news from your point of view, uh, I would say, is that that Donald Trump is the best thing that could happen to Hillary Clinton, right? I mean, one of the problems oh, for absolutely. Yeah, one of the problems Hillary Clinton has, um, uh, notwithstanding what you say, is that she tends not to inspire fervent participation from a lot of people. Some people, yeah, see her very much as the realization. But that goes along with the lie. Yeah, I think think some of it goes along with the lie, but I think not all of it. And I I would say this. I mean, she strikes me as a person who has exercised extraordinarily bad judgment uh, at times. She's a poor campaigner in many ways. And, you know, to have taken these— Taken huge speaking fees from Goldman Sachs to to have engaged uh, the 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 offsite email server uh, to have fifty five thousand email pages of emails from and that yet server. When the head of our Republican Party in Congress says that he's not going to pass uh, this new Supreme Court man hmm. in the least because DNA would I mean NRA wouldn't like. Or the DNA, for that matter. I live in Southbury, right next to Newtown, where the NRA is like a dirty wolf. Well, listen, Tay, thanks so much for calling in. Uh, And I want to get a few more callers uh, on the air here. Here's Bob in eastern Long Island. Oh, good. That means the Bridgehampton transmitter is working again. That's good. Hi, Bob. You're on the air. Hi, Colin. Um, Question relative to the thoughts on an article I saw in the New York Times this weekend 
about carrier air conditioning, moving uh, 1,600 jobs to Mexico, basically terminating those positions in the States. Um, profitable company. Everything seems to be driven by shareholder return, and um, it seems to be totally a destructive action. So your question would be, who, who's best poised to address that problem? I'm not sure the problem has really even been addressed. Yeah. No, I think you might might be right about that. I mean, look, th- this is part of, obviously, a trend that predates um, a- any currently active politician. Uh, some people want to pin it on NAFTA. Um, one thing that I would say, I was thinking about this listening to Michael Goodwin, I think there are limits to which you can kind of unwind the clock or put the toothpaste back in the tube or whatever your metaphor is. I mean, uh, we may have globalized too fast or too profligate, profligately, uh, but I'm not sure that we have the capacity uh, to, to unwind that problem and, and get it back uh, to its place of origin. Uh, and that's sort of, I think that is a little bit one of the, the myths that Trump is circulating, that somehow or other that you can you can unring the bell. Okay, I've used eight different metaphors for that. All right, I uh, have uh, time for one or two more callers. Here's Neam in New London. Hi, you're on the air. Hey, how are you doing? Good. Wonderful show. Listen, uh, I, you know, all of the candidates are promising new jobs, uh, that they're going to bring America back to its footing once again, when in fact, all of the jobs are moved moved offshore. There's no new manufacturer. Uh, the kids that are coming out of high school and colleges, they have to think for themselves. They have to be relegated to jobs where the pay is minimum wage. Uh, I have kids that are doing just that. College background, out of high school, incredibly well, but there, there's no future for them. Now, how this is going to be addressed, I, I simply don't know, and I don't think any of the candidates know. I think that's uh, fair, um, and, and I would say, first of all, one of the ways in which I, I think Mr. Trump is sometimes undermined by his own rhetoric is that uh, an awful lot of the products that bear his name, of course, are manufactured under exactly those circumstances. They're manufactured in Bangladesh or China or where, wherever the labor is cheap and production costs are low. When you ask him about that, he says, well, he simply has to play by the rules that exist now. He'd like to have, he'd like to even put in a new set of rules. But I'm not... The thing is that Trump is... is, is the- He's, he's fermenting the, the illusion that uh, he's going to correct all of this problem when he hasn't even, as one caller mentioned earlier, that this, he's created a vague, uh, a vague illusion. Uh, and and we, we, we want the smoke and mirrors. We're not looking at the realities that this guy is uh, he, he's not, uh, you know, American in, in, in terms of philosophy, let alone a, a good candidate to run this country. So. Um, I, I, I tend to agree with you, Neil, but I just would quickly say one of the things that America has typically been pretty good at for centuries is inventing stuff, uh, getting ahead of the curve, innovating, something that we do really well. Uh, and we can continue to do that well. We do continue to do that well on a number of fronts. The, the global reality is, and, and once again, this is toothpaste that you cannot very easily stuff back in the tube. The global reality is that a, a lot of that stuff will wind up, the manufacturing of a lot of that kind of stuff will not be it won't be possible to hold it on American soil, no matter what kinds of protective uh, trade arrangements you talk about doing. A lot of it is going to be manufactured someplace else. It's, it is a global economy, uh, as one of our other callers. Well, I can put Tony on the air really quickly. Uh, hi, Tony. I've only got about a minute for you, so be incredibly succinct. Sure, sure, Colin. Hey, um, I wonder why it doesn't come up more that basically Trump is he's a casino guy, and, and casinos are smokes and mirrors and, and trying to convince people they can get a lot of free stuff for doing nothing, and that's basically what he says now. And 
God, like that real smart uh, guy you just had on the uh, the second your second speaker mm. um, really didn't seem to see through that, and it, that's what that's what scares me. I guess is smart people seem to be also uh, delusioned by this. Um, all right. Well, yes. Thanks for your call. Uh, anyway, I just want to go back to what I was saying before. If if a candidate who could really, I think, maybe give us hope would be the candidate who does emphasize getting ahead of the curve. Um, there's a lot of room for innovation in, in the years ahead. Uh, there are ways in which we have to innovate whether we want to or not because of climate change. Um, there And there are ways in which we've lagged behind. Uh, and, and we've gotten behind other world economies that have recognized um, that you have to be very competitive in meeting certain environmental standards when you do construction and stuff like that. Because of our level of denialism about all that, we got way behind about it. But there's uh, behind in that field. But there are opportunities. There's ways to innovate. I'm not really hearing any candidate talk very much about that. I, I do agree with the callers who said you can't restore the past. You're not going to be able to make it 1960 in central Pennsylvania. Again, that won't happen. It won't come. Um, other things have to happen, and, and there has to be uh, a willingness on the part of leadership to foster and promulgate those other things. So the candidate who gets that message out will do a lot better. Uh, thanks very much for listening today. Thanks very much to everybody who helped out. Always uh, a challenge when Kylan Wolf is out, but then we got Gina Matruda. We got the Jedi. Uh, thanks to Betsy Kaplan also for putting together this show today. We will be back tomorrow. We are going to do a speculative show tomorrow. It's 2019. Mr. Trump has been president for two years going into his third term. What does America look like?